0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Administrations and Congresses have been talking about infrastructure for the last 20 years. This time, something might happen, though. The Biden administration is talking shovel-worthy projects, not shovel-ready. And that could be a whole new ballgame with how professional services contractors are thinking about this, the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And actually, David, before we get into the infrastructure bill, I wanted to ask you about the skinny budget, which we don't have as we speak now. And the longer it goes, the tougher it gets, doesn't it?
0: Yes, Tom. And it's so skinny right now, you can't see it at all, because, of course, the president did not release it to the Congress last week. We expect it maybe this week. We'll see. But even that is only gonna set the top line numbers that will let Congress know generally what the administration's budget, when it is released, will propose spending for defense and for civilian agencies. Congress, of course, is way behind schedule already. They have not begun negotiating on a budget resolution because they're not quite sure what number to aim at. They've not begun marking up bills either uh, in the authorizing side, for instance, the National Defense Authorization Act or the appropriation side. They're behind schedule, but the schedule is actually also shorter because not only do they have the October 1st start of fiscal year 22 to worry about, they have the August 1st reset of the debt ceiling. And we don't know how long we can postpone that sort of thing. So uh, there's a lot of pressure on Congress at the back end, and there's no provision of information at the front end after the skinny budget's released, we'll still be maybe a month and a half or two months away from any details coming out of that. So it leaves the Congress in a lurch. It leaves contractors, of course, with a lot of uncertainty. And the impact on business is that agencies who don't know what they're going to get in fiscal year 22 may be reluctant to spend what they have in fiscal year 21, which is already more than half over. And so what we worry about is the dampening effect, Uh, work that's important may be delayed or deferred, contracts may not be awarded, uh, and this will be a big
1: problem. Well, even if the administration were to drop the skinny budget right now, given the context of this gigantic bill that they're just gearing up to debate – It would almost be like spitting into a giant whirlpool in the ocean. The uh, little flotsam there would get kind of swirled around until the big thing is over with. Then they can get to the actual budget, which is dwarfed by the bill they're talking about.
0: Right. If you look at the actual annual trend in discretionary appropriations, both defense and civilian agencies, it's probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.4 trillion for fiscal year 22 with the American Jobs Plan Act that, the, that that we haven't seen the legislation yet, but we've had the fact sheet and the president's speech last week, that's $2.2 trillion. That's $2.2 trillion over eight years. So it's not that much in the first year, but it's a big number.
1: It is a big number, and it is a lot more than simply infrastructure as people, I think, traditionally think about it. Bridges and tunnels and so forth, those are in there, but so is, well, pretty much every problem facing Western civilization.
0: Well, and it's part one of a two-part series, so so we haven't seen the legislation, we don't know the details. The fact sheet, of course, was 20-something pages long, so there's a lot of facts in there. And it does have a lot of roads, bridges, infrastructure, rails, et cetera, ports. Those are important. Uh, Every year we get a report card from the American Society of Civil Engineers that says, you know, America's infrastructure is crumbling, and clearly we can't stay competitive on a global framework of an economy if we don't have an infrastructure in place. But there's a lot more to it than that. And I think contractors look at this from two ways. Number one is the government itself has infrastructure problems. And the pandemic has certainly revealed that, right? The, the weaknesses of our own infrastructure, both IT systems and networks and data systems across the board, is well-documented over the last year. And of course, highlighted by things like Solar Winds and Microsoft Exchange server hacks, et cetera. So there's plenty of opportunity and important needs to rebuild the government's own infrastructure. And then, of course, there's the contractor support that will come along with many of these programs to be put in place. Uh, now, we don't know what the legislative proposal is, and we certainly don't know what Congress is going to end up enacting, but contractors are eyeing this with
1: care. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And I've gotten emails on a couple of occasions now already from new coalitions, new organizations formed around what they have read in that summary that the White House put out, already gearing up to go after the money Are you finding in your members or are they just going to wait and see what's in there and kind of play it by ear?
0: Well, our members feel pretty strongly on, on the need for rebuilding the government's own infrastructure. You know, Tom, in the American Rescue Plan Act that was signed just back in March, there was an extra billion dollars for the technology modernization fund. If you look at what the government spends on IT and data systems every year, it's now approaching $100 billion, and 90% of that, of course, is sustained legacy systems. So adding a billion dollars to what's a $100 billion budget is really not enough modernization. I think we're going to be pushing very hard for increased modernization funding across the federal government, we think that'll do three things. Number one, it'll boost the government's ability to operate. Number two is it will increase cybersecurity because one of the best things you can do is get rid of old legacy systems that aren't even being updated anymore and certainly not protected. And number three is actually we'll let the government deliver better services to the American people. And that's an important step for beginning to restore trust in the government, independent of the politics, just have the government do its job better.
1: And I would think, too, is as the government does rebuild its own infrastructure, it's a great opportunity for the kinds of services where companies help the government re-engineer its business processes and then apply the robotic process automation and machine learning to these newly designed processes, because that's how you'll get the next round of services delivered out to the public.
0: That kind of change, Tom, is precisely what's needed. And, And this is not only a change in applying technology and new systems and processes, it's a change in the way the government thinks about contracting. What you need is, in fact, for programs to be proposed and bid and awarded and performed based on the results they achieve not based on input, so many labor hours and so many labor categories across companies. That's a huge change for the federal government. It's one that our members look forward to supporting, and it should be a part of the American Jobs Plan if it gets into Congress.
1: And connecting another dot here, now the White House is going to nominate Mike Brown as the next Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. And he's running the Defense Innovation Unit right now which has all of these different and unorthodox and new approaches to getting new technology and new vendors into government. Whether it signals anything or not, hard to tell yet, but that is an interesting choice.
0: It's, I think, a very powerful signal. The way the government needs to get innovation in, as you mentioned earlier, to improve performance and and deliver better services uh, to the people across America is important. To do so outside of the normal procurement process is the reason DIU was set up in the first place. Now, to take a guy who's in charge of avoiding the normal process and putting him in charge of the normal process in DOD is an intriguing prospect. We have maintained all along that if you can fix the procurement system for some people, outside innovators, for example, you really should be able to fix it for everybody. And I think this could be an opportunity to revisit that question, could be very exciting. In addition, the Defense Department is just finishing up some very interesting work directed by last year's National Defense Authorization Act to integrate and consolidate all of the acquisition statutes under Title X, which is the part of the U.S. Code that governs the Defense Department. They've put a preliminary effort of that in a report to Congress that we're looking at right now. So this is a great time to be looking at really fundamentally changing how we do acquisitions so we can buy results and innovation rather than the stodgy old way of doing business.
1: And given the scope of the bill, this could also spread to state government, which is another big opportunity. And if there's any kind of tie in of state and local systems with federal systems, and we know there is, then this could really be a bigger opportunity than just federal
0: it could certainly be. And a lot of the same things that would work better at the federal level will work better at the state level. Conversely, there are a lot of new ideas that are tried at the state level, which if they're successfully implemented, whether it's healthcare or you or know, home care or whatever it is the government program is trying to support, then that's the kind of thing that you can scale up to the federal level if you have the appropriate records in place. We're watching very carefully what the new acquisition regulations are coming out of the new administration as they begin to fill these seats, including the Undersecretary for acquisitions and Sustainment in DOD.
1: David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. Lots to look forward to. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: All right, Tom. Thank you. And play ball.
1: We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Subscribe to the Federal Tribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA.
2: Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader. All of these are backward-looking development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others, and this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other, and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors and it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee, Uh, He joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, Still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WAPA as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. Uh, I've led. This is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling. uh, You mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away,